What jurisdiction does the law still have in the life of the believer's sanctification? You're listening to a sermon series titled Romans, preached at Shoreline Church. For more audio or theological content, please visit thisisshoreline.com. Romans chapter 7, reading from the ESV. Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she's released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. This is God's word. Father, thank you for your word. Would you teach us by your Holy Spirit now as we exposit this text for your glory? Amen. Amen. Go ahead and grab a seat. Now, as a pastor, one of my favorite ceremonies to perform is weddings. I love weddings. I might be the only guy in the room that loves weddings, but uh, I, I just love them. You go and there is just joy. Everyone, except for a few people here and there who look like they bit into a lemon. Most people are excited and joyful at weddings. There's, there's mirth, whatever that is. There's mirth at weddings. People are married. They're eating and drinking, just joyful. Weddings, the electric slide is alive and well. Uh, I love to be invited to weddings. Um, now I love to officiate them, but I love to be invited to them as well because I get free food and I get free cake. And that's always a good thing. Cake is always a good thing. Uh, and so, man, every wedding I've been to, it doesn't matter who it is, the bride, you look at her, she comes down the aisle, everyone stands, she's radiant, she's glowing. You look at the husband and he is dumbstruck. I, I love watching, not the bride, she's, she's always perfect, but I, I love looking at the, the groom, the husband-to-be. And he's, he's like, you know, sometimes sobbing. He, he has no idea what he's getting into. It's awesome. I love watching the response of the groom. But the best thing is that I have the privilege, whether I'm officiating or in the audience, I have the honor of seeing two people unite themselves in holy matrimony before God and before supportive witnesses. Now, when I officiate weddings, one of the things I do is a vow ceremony where we, we exchange vows. And you've heard vows like this. Like, I vow today before God and witnesses to love and to serve, to provide for and protect, to submit to and honor, to nurture and cherish, in joy and in sorrow, here's the part you know, in sickness and in health, to, I add this, to celebrate your strengths and to encourage you in your weaknesses, 
being solely devoted to you in Christ until I die. The more traditional way of saying that last part is, you know it, till death do us part. That's the title of the sermon today, till death do us part. And when we look at marriage, we have to not look at the current cultural context of how the world describes marriage, because the world would say if you're two consenting adults and you want to express your love and devotion to one another, well, then you might save on maybe workforce benefits, and that would be nice to marry. Or, hey, if you're a guy and you want to put a ring on it to show her that you're serious so she doesn't marry some other guy because she's a catch, so quickly propose to her and get married so she doesn't marry another guy. Uh, Some of these silly notions of, well, just two consenting loving people. Um, When we look at the scriptures, when God instituted marriage, we realize, no, the original design was not just two consenting adults. God's original design uh, was for two people, man and woman, husband and wife, to demonstrate as they come together in marriage, to demonstrate to the world the love that Christ has with and for his bride, the church. So our Christian marriages display to the world the steadfast and agape love that Christ has in laying down his life for his people, as well as the willing submission that the church has in honoring and submitting to and listening and respecting Christ as our head. And so God's design for marriage is not something we dreamed up or we create. We go to the scriptures and what do we find? We find that it is to be an unbroken commitment that lasts until death. So when a husband dies, and sadly for some of you that is true, the wife, when a husband dies, is no longer bound to her wedding vows that she made on her wedding day, to love, to serve, to submit, in joy and sorrow, sickness and in health. She's no longer bound to that. Now, death didn't separate her love for her husband. She still loves him. It doesn't separate her fondness for him, the memories that they had, the friendship that they enjoyed. Death doesn't separate that. But the legal nature of the vow she made with him or he with her is now laid to rest with the body. Now, as we continue, I say all that as an intro, when we continue today the book of Romans, our study of it, Paul the Apostle now presents a third image to show what our sanctification looks like. Now, remember, we've already had two. In chapter 6, he already used the imagery, remember, of baptism and how we have been joined with Christ. We identify with Jesus in his death and burial and resurrection. We learned last week at the second half of chapter 6, the imagery of slavery and how we used to be a slave of sin, but now we've been set free and are slaves to God or slaves of righteousness. That was the second image. But today, we tackle the third image, and it's an imagery of marriage, what our relationship looks like to the law as believers. Now, there are several parallels as we move from chapter 6 to chapter 7 that I want to point out. These are, these are helpful parallels. And uh, one scholar pointed them out. I'll put them on the screen. We learn in chapter 6 that we've died to sin, but in chapter 7 we learn, we're about to learn we've died to the law. We share in Christ's resurrection in chapter 6, and we belong to him who also he was raised from the dead, chapter 7. We are freed from sin, chapter 6, but we're released from the law, chapter 7. You guys see the parallels? We walk in newness of life because of our freedom from sin and our baptism into the Spirit, but now we serve in the newness of the Spirit. And the fruit 
we learn in chapter 6, leads to holiness, but here we learn that we now bear fruit to God. So a lot of parallels. Now, the theme of chapter 6 was clearly sin. If you want to jot this down, 17 times sin is mentioned in chapter 6. So that's the obvious theme of chapter 6. But the obvious theme of chapter 7 is the word law, and it's mentioned 29 times in chapter 7. Now, I was here preaching both services the last few weeks, and when we referenced Romans 6.14, guys, get your eyes on the text, find Romans 6.14. When we came to that part, I remember because I was here, I didn't see any alarm bells go off. I didn't see anyone stand up and go, wait, I'm sorry, I have a question timeout, which you shouldn't do anyway. Don't interrupt God's word being preached. But I can tell you this, when Paul the apostle wrote this and the church in Rome had maybe a visitor there who was a Jew, if they heard Romans 6.14, there would have been, they would have been falling asleep maybe and it would have roused them to DEFCON 5. Romans 6.14, if you missed it, it's on the screen. Paul says, for sin will have no dominion over you since you're not under law, but under grace. The Jew listening to that would say, wait, what do you mean I'm not under law? What do you mean I'm under grace? What does that look like? Uh, what, and we would say it this way, what exactly is my relationship as a believer to the law? Like, like what relationship do we have now? Is the law good or is the law evil? Uh, in fact, what was Paul's experience as a Pharisee, now as a Christian? What, is he, what would he have to say about his relationship being well-versed, well-trained in Torah? What can each and every one of us as believers, what can we expect in our struggle against sin and as we connect with God's commands? This is a controversial topic. And reading New Testament theology, there's no good you know, New Testament theology worth its salt that doesn't cover and tackle this big theme of the law and the believer. What do we do with it? Well, chapter 7 settles the debate. We come to chapter 7, and it's not only a controversial chapter, but it's a glorious chapter when you understand Paul's point. And here's the million-dollar question we're going to be asking. We're going to be asking this. What jurisdiction does the law still have in the life of the believer's sanctification? And I think by the end of chapter 7, we're going to have a good handle on the answer to that. And if we don't, then blame Pastor Micah because he's going to be the one <laughs> that helps teach this chapter. I'm just kidding. He's going to do a great job. So today we're going to be um, looking at three aspects of this text. We're going to move a little bit fast through them. Uh, but on the screen, if you're taking note, I hope you are. We're going to first inquire. Paul inquires. He asks a question. You'll, you'll recognize this question. Number two, we're going to see him illustrate his point with this idea of marriage. And then number three, as he often does, he then implements the illustration and applies it to our life. So that's where we're going today. Let's first see what Paul inquires. Look at verse 1 with me. Again, a very familiar question. Verse 1, or do you not know brothers? Remember, we saw that in chapter 6, verse 1 and verse 15. The, the, uh, the idea of what do we know? Remember, what do we know? But here he adds an extra clause. He says, for I'm speaking to those who know the law that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. Paul is maybe even saying, do you not know? Or maybe more accurately, hey, you do know this. You guys know this. He, he's clarifying, I'm speaking to you who know the law. Though his audience was Roman, he's stating with confidence, the readers of this letter, hey, you're not sitting there going, who's Moses? What is this law about? Never heard of it. He's saying, no, you, don't you know? You know. In fact, some scholars have even added the idea that the definite article in front of the word law, in other words, the, 
is missing in the Greek. So their suggestion is, he's just saying, hey, you know, law itself just applies only to living people. Now, I know some legislators would probably be like, let's actually add laws to dead people. I know they're trying and people do that. But Paul's argument here is, hey, you guys know this, that laws are only binding upon living people. And if you die, you're no longer in trouble for breaking the law. Uh, And so notice in verse 1 the word for binding. Would you circle that word binding? The law is binding on a person. That is a variant of the word we introduced to you last week in the Greek for lord or master, the Greek word kurios. The idea here is that when he uses it here, he's saying, you know that the law is no longer a master, a lord over you once you die. Uh, And so once someone dies... They're no longer bound like a slave, but they're free from the control of that master. When there's a death, the relationship with all law has been laid to rest with the body, right? That's pretty clear. But Paul's argument, if he's talking about the law of Moses here, is that the law has the authority while you're alive to stand over and to judge you. And if we take that to its extreme, the law has the authority to eternally condemn you. You see, on Judgment Day, it's the law of God that stands, if you would, against us. If the precepts of the law and our transgressions in reference to the law are not dealt with, if you're like, well, I'm just going to see if God will weigh my good deeds and my bad deeds, and I'm going to help some old ladies across the street, and I'll give to, I don't know, the the Cat Foundation, then I'm good. Like God's going to understand and we're going to be good to go. No, if in reference to transgressing the law of God that's not dealt with properly, uh, then the law itself will condemn. Uh, And thanks be to God through Jesus Christ who submitted his life and fully obeyed the law perfectly. As we sang earlier, not, not the labor of my hands can fulfill the law's demands. Only Christ has done the work. But see, the law only has the power to lord over you and threaten to condemn you while you're alive. Once you're dead, that's it. It, it. it will condemn you apart from Christ. So let me illustrate it this way. Back in the 60s, I wasn't here, but some of you were, uh, President Kennedy was assassinated by Lee Harvey Oswald. And a few days after apprehending Oswald and while he was awaiting his trial, Jack Ruby was able to publicly get close enough to Oswald to shoot him and to kill him. By the way, that's why there was no murder trial for the assassination of the president. Why? Because the law that lorded over Oswald and condemned him to die could only be binding on him while he was alive. Once he was dead, that was it. There was no trial. And see, that is Paul's inquiry. He's saying, don't you know this? Actually, you do know this. You know that this is only binding on the living. So now he transitions to the imagery of a beautiful image of a married woman whose husband dies. Look with me at verse two. A married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she's released from the law of marriage. And then he adds in verse three, very helpful, Uh, He adds this, accordingly, basically, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. If she acts unmarried, if she acts like a widow, but she's still married and decides to move in with another guy, well, that's adultery. But if he dies and she gets married and moves in with another guy, that's not adultery, that's called marriage. So does that make sense? Like the relationship and death breaks the relationship. So uh, Paul is saying both husbands and wives are bound by law to one another while they're alive. He actually told the Corinthians this, 1 Corinthians 7, 39. He said this, a wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she's free to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. 
So I want to challenge and encourage any widows here, widowers, if you are going to get remarried and you're in Christ, you need to marry someone who's a believer uh, if, if you're in that situation uh, and you're considering, well, he's a great guy, he drives a great car, is he in the Lord? That's, that's the question, okay? I do want to make a quick statement here about marriage since we're talking about it. We believe, and we didn't get any amens in first service, we can improve that. We believe here at Shoreline in godly biblical marriages, amen? Why? Because the Bible both describes and prescribes faithful conjugal love and submission between a man and a woman, which is a picture of Christ's love for his church. And so uh, I want to encourage us that though the culture doesn't hold marriage in high regard, or it does for certain groups of people, that we have a great example to set to the world that's desperately longing for something deeper and, and real. And we have that opportunity to do that. And so if you're single here today, I've said it many times, singleness is not a sickness and marriage is the cure. Uh, if you're single here today, Paul even says you might be able to do more effective gospel ministry than some of us who are married. Uh, and so we want, for those who are married, we want our marriages to display the glory of God. And I have an amazing marriage. I'm so thankful for my wife and just the, the incredible time that we've had in our 20 years of marriage. We got married at five years old, and it was just wonderful <laughs> to be married these last 21 years. I said 20, now I'm in a lot of trouble, but 21 years. And um, as we look at this illustration together, Paul's using this illustration of husband and wife. Now, I said it last week, but illustrations can sometimes break down. Um, not, I want to be careful here, not because they're not inspired by God. All scripture is God-breathed. And Jesus' parables are trustworthy, true, and dynamic. So the breakdown of the illustration is not in the author or the speaker's use of them. The breakdown is when you and I, in Bible study, we try to maybe over-apply or over-interpret the original intended meaning of the author or speaker. Does that make sense? So it's our fault, not the fault of the example. Uh, and so the imagery that's being used applies in a, very, a way that we have to be very precise with precision and care. So here in Paul's example of the, the husband and wife, I'm saying all that because things don't correspond exactly as he lays them out. So we have to proceed carefully and do due diligence to interpret this rightly. So he, notice, he paints the picture of a husband dying. When the husband dies, the woman is now free to remarry without breaking any law. So wait, is he saying the law is what we're married to and the law died? Didn't Jesus come to fulfill the law? Uh, so, uh, so we're the woman, right? But then Paul goes on to say, we died. Wait, so we're the husband? So, we so who are we? Again, Paul's illustration is dynamic. It's fantastic. It's given by inspiration of the Spirit. We need to apply it carefully. We need to tread lightly. Most, I'm saying that because most false teachings take an obscure verse and make a doctrine out of it. Every single cult that goes off the deep end and goes into false teaching takes verses that they greatly misinterpret. So we have to be careful as we, we don't take this lightly. We have to be very careful. So Paul could have said, we were married to the law, but the law was killed by the work of Christ. And we're free to be joined with Christ. But notice, he almost reverses the image. Did you see it? We're the ones who died to the law. When we were baptized, we were joined with Christ in his crucifixion. And that means we're now free from the obligations of the law. And we're free to marry another, not to remarry the law again, but we're now joined with Christ in his resurrection. I found Christopher Ashe's commentary very helpful on this. He, here's what he says. This may answer your questions. 
He says, in Paul's illustration, the husband dies, the wife remarries. But in the reality which Paul is illustrating, the believer is like a wife who dies and then as a resurrected wife, marries a resurrected husband, Christ. The key point, here's the key point, is that death ends the first relationship and makes possible the second. That's the point. And that's the idea that Paul's getting at. A marriage contract is binding. You guys remember this? You were young kids. You went to the, you went to the courthouse. You're all doughy-eyed, and, or maybe after the wedding ceremony, and you sign that marriage certificate, and you're like, we're going for it. This is it. You had no idea what you were getting into, right? All of the, you could say, the constraints, the boundaries, the limits, the demands of the law of marriage within that legal document uh, now changed some things. So now day one, day three, day seven, you're not living as if you're unmarried any longer. Try that. <laughs> it's not going to work very long if you're newlyweds. You're no, you're no longer living as if you're unmarried. Now you're joined to that person. But if one of the spouses dies, the converse is also true. You don't have to continue living a single day as though you're still married, right? So if you're a widow or widower, and it's sad to think about that, marrying another man or woman, uh, depending on who you are, it doesn't make you unfaithful because death has separated you from the obligations of that former contract. You guys know where he's, saying, where he's going with this? Because of the death and resurrection of Christ and our identifying and joining with his body, we are now married to another. We're married to Christ. And, and I like what William Barclay says about this. He says, when that happens, Christian obedience, think about the law, Christian obedience becomes not an externally imposed obedience to some written code of laws, but it's an inner allegiance of the Spirit to Jesus Christ. See the difference? Uh, and that's what he gets to in verses 4 through 6. As he takes the illustration of uh, a death, a widow, a widower, and then he now applies it to our lives, he says in verse 4, Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ. Why? So that you may belong to another, to him who's been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. And then we have kind of a throwback, kind of a flashback to our life before Christ, verse 5. While we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions were aroused by the law and were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now today, he says, now because of Christ, we're released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Now, stay with me. We've already learned from Romans 6 that with Christ, we died to sin. And some may have suspected, well, yes, we were saved from sin by the grace of God. But now we need to live by keeping the law to keep God happy. We need to live the law to please God. Now, we may be free from the demands or the constraints of the law, but that does not mean, listen, that does not mean we're an unmarried single widow now. Hey, I'm, I'm, I'm free from the law, so I just live however I want. That's not the idea. No, we're now joined with Christ. To use Paul's words, we now belong to another in order that what? That we may bear fruit for God. And how did it happen? Well, he tells us in verse uh, five or four that it, it happened through the body of Christ. Would you circle that phrase, body of Christ? That does not mean, as some have erroneously thought, that that's the church. Yes, the church is known as the body of Christ. But this is literally the body of Christ, like literally Jesus' body on Calvary. Uh, we died through his death, and when he rose from the dead, now we are risen with him and we bear fruit for God. 
and so I love verse 5 kind of shows us that we had our sinful passions aroused because of the law. And we're not going to go into it too much, but here's a spoiler alert for next week. Paul does a deep dive into that. Like, oh, I didn't even know what sin was until the law defined it. And you'll get into that. You guys go ahead and read ahead for next week uh, when we look at verses 7 through 14. But the key here is looking at the contrast between verse 4 and verse 5. Look at bearing fruit for God. In Christ, we bear fruit for God, and that leads to holiness, righteousness, effectiveness. And then verse 5, we bear fruit for death. Now, those two ideas of bearing fruit, some scholars were suggesting that that's the idea of childbirth. So in a marriage, you come together and you conceive, and what do you bear? You bear children. And so the argument here is that some people make is that you're giving birth, you're like having, you're conceiving fruit for life or fruit for death. Now, that's kind of a stretch. I don't know if I see that exactly, if we see that in the Greek. But the idea is that we now, in Christ, bear fruit for God, not because we're trying harder, but because we're yoked with him, we're abiding in him. And now we bear the fruit of the Spirit, which is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. But notice verse 6. Like a husband who died, we are now released from the law, and yet we're the ones who died. And now we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way. And we'll talk about that in just a moment. The new way and the old way. We get to Romans chapter 8 and we learn what is the new way. What, is the, what does it mean to walk in the Spirit, to be empowered and be Spirit-filled? What does that look like? Romans chapter 8 gives us this glorious kind of 30,000-foot view of what it means to be in the Spirit, life in the Spirit. Now, Paul could have gone directly there right after verse 6. He could have just gone, all right, here we go. Here it is. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ has set you free from the law of sin and death. He could have done that. But I'm so thankful that Paul says in verse 7, what shall we say then? And he goes into this idea of sin, of sin and law and our relationship to the law. This is an area that most Christians don't really know what to do with. What do we do with the law? How do we, how do we handle this? And so I'm so thankful that Paul took the time to say, here's what our relationship looks like with the law. And uh, we'll, we'll see this as we study it for the next few weeks. So excited to do that as we look at this great chapter uh, in Romans 7. Now, today I want to apply the text in the same way that Paul did. So we're going to uh, just jot down three areas of application. So number one, this is so glorious, guys. We belong to a new bridegroom. Isn't that incredible? One person said this, the law is a terrible husband, strict, inflexible, stern, rigid, demanding, unbending. Whereas the Lord, the Lord is a wonderful husband, merciful, gracious, and he by his power and life enables me to please him. I have the privilege of being in an awesome marriage, but I know some people have struggled. They've been in just an awful marriage. And how was, just think about it for a minute, in your life before Christ, how was that former marriage to the law? How was that? Was that a, a cycle of joy and fruitfulness and abundance, or was that a never-ending cycle of self-performance and failure and sin and condemnation and then performance and failure and sin and condemnation. Under the law, it continued ad infinitum. But because of that, the fruit was more sin, more shame, 
more condemnation, more self-performance to get out of the rut, and of course, more and more and more failure. The antinomian looks at the law, right? And they go, man, I'm glad that girl died. She was the worst. She was the worst person to be married to because the antinomian wants to just say there is no law. The moralist looks at the former marriage and says, man, I miss that girl. I'm just, I really miss her a lot. But in Christ, we say, no, the law is good. I'm no longer in bondage to it because I'm married now to Christ. And I see the law fulfilled in me as the spirit works in and through me. I'm not under law, I'm under grace. Christopher Ashe says this about our relationship to the law. He says, all believers have been released both from the law's authority to condemn us and from the powerless, powerlessness of the law to change us. What a glorious truth, guys. We now belong to Christ, who is our bridegroom. Uh, didn't get any amens for service either. But man, that is just, that is to me just, I am joined with Christ. I'm no longer joined to sin. I'm no longer joined to death. I'm no longer joined to the, the uh, bondage and powerlessness of the law. I'm joined to one who loves me and gave himself for me. It's incredible. Well, number two, uh, as we apply this, our purpose in life is to bear fruit for God. That's what he says. In order that, this is the whole point, to, to bear fruit. So listen, believer, the purpose for your life is not, I know you're in Lakewood Ranch, it's not to make more and more money. It's to bear fruit for God. The purpose for your life, for our life, is not to make a name for ourselves. It's to bear fruit for God. The purpose of our life is not to be the greatest, the smartest, the strongest, the coolest, the most successful, the most known, the most powerful. It's no, it's to submit our lives to the Spirit of God to be used for the glory of God. And how do we do that? How do we do that? Well, Jesus told us, not that it's a secret, but the secret of fruitfulness. He says in John 15, I'm the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I use this hand motion on purpose, whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. We bear fruit by abiding in Christ, abiding in the vine, and his word abiding in us. Uh, we uh, drove by some neighbor's houses the other day, and one of our neighbors has uh, a tree that they chopped down com pretty much completely. And they chopped all the wood up, and they laid the wood in this massive pile on their driveway. And I was like, trash guy's not going to get that. That's a special call. Um, and so we would drive by, and the next time we drove by, the green leaves on the, on the tree you know, branches were a little bit browner. And we drove by again, a little bit browner. Now it's just one big pile of tinder, just ready for the fire. Why? Because it's been cut off from the tree. Now, you compare that to a tree in our yard. So when Irma hit 2017, we, uh, we had one of our trees. It's a pepper tree. Those are satanic, by the way, those pepper trees. <laughs> and this pepper tree tipped over. Uh, and so, you know, we basically, after Irma hit, I kind of propped it back up and started, I don't know why I did that. That was like the grace of God knocking that thing down. But I propped it back up and, man, that thing just began to flourish. So much so that it grew up above our roof line and started digging into our plumbing. Like it's getting into the foundation of the home and the plumbing. So we had to have a, a group of guys come out and chop it down at the stump. And uh, the other day, this is crazy. This is like two weeks after it got chopped down. I'm walking uh, my dog, my white lab, Luther. He's a Protestant white lab. Uh, and <laughs> we walked to the side yard and I literally thought I was being punked. I looked in the side yard and there's the tree. It's back. And 
it's almost as high as it originally was. This thing is like growing fruitfully. So um, if anybody has a stump guy, I need a stump guy. <laughs> we got to get this thing um, cut off. My point in all that is that one tree was completely cut off. And no matter how hard it tried laying there in the driveway to make itself green and fruitful, it had no, no opportunity to do so. The other is connected and it is able to bear fruit. Maybe in that case, fruit we don't want. Um, but we, apart from Christ, can do nothing. So we abide in him and his word abides in us. Now that doesn't mean when we abide in Christ, we do nothing. So I'm just going to let go and let God. I'm just going to sit back and do nothing. No, uh, there's work for us to do. And that brings us to our third application point is Paul says we're now free to serve God in the way of the spirit. So you and I are slaves of righteousness. We're sons and daughters of God. And our freedom is freedom to serve, not to sin. The law is no longer a master over us because we have a new husband uh, who's resurrected and now we have the spirit who gives us power and works obedience in and through us. So you've heard this illustration, I'm sure, before, but there's a story of a woman who was married to a husband who kept a list. And on this list were 25 things he expected of her. And they were all good things. But every day he would check off one at a time, whether she fulfilled the list. Hey, honey, you cooked, check. You cleaned, check. You cared for the kids, check. And at the end of the day, he would tell her how she scored. Hey, sweetie, you did really good today. You got a 23 out of 25, so good job. Or, wow, only 19 out of the list. You better work a little bit harder tomorrow. And the woman, unsurprisingly, was miserable. She didn't expect to be married and joined to a list but the things, though they were good and important on the list, she desired more for her relationship. And you know how the story goes. Two years later, her husband uh, dies, and two years later, she's remarried to this man who loves her and who happened to keep no lists. And as she's cleaning, years and years later, she opens the drawer and she finds one of the original husband's lists. And as she begins to look down and chuckle at the list, something kind of surprises her, and she realizes... I'm doing all 25 of those things for my new husband, not out of duty, but out of delight. Because I love my husband, I'm just naturally doing those things, not out of trying to keep a list and impress him, but because I love him and desire to do it. And the idea behind that illustration is what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 3, 6, where he said, for the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. You and I, Romans 2, 29, circumcision is of the heart, by the Spirit, not the letter. We have now a better way, the way of the Spirit versus the way of the law, the letter. And we'll see in the coming weeks, the law does not have the power to change the heart of man, but the Spirit of God does. And so now that we're not under law, but under grace, now we're free to serve God in this new way, the way of the Spirit. His commands are written on our heart and we fulfill the law as we abide in Him. And so we get to join the Spirit in His sanctifying work in us, and in his work of glorifying the Father through us. As we close today, if you haven't heard yet, today's Father's Day. So happy Father's Day to all of our men. I want to just encourage all of us, if your father's alive, I want to encourage you to be reconciled to him today. It may be a phone call. For me it is. My dad isn't, doesn't live here locally. Uh, it may be a phone call. If he's local, pay him a visit. If you're estranged, would you push through that and take the time to honor uh, your father this morning.
And men, if I could just address you as fathers and husbands for a second. Uh, in our marriages, we want to embody Christ-like love for our wives. We want to point them to the grace of God, the love of God, the word of God. Husbands, fathers, you're not expected to be perfect. But we can introduce in our imperfections the grace of the gospel. And we can model the gospel to our kids. Not that we're sinless, but blameless. And when I say blameless, that means we come with humility. We keep short accounts before our family, before God. And we do our best to model humility, honor, holiness in our work, in our home, in our community, and especially here in the body of Christ. So as husbands who are joined to our wives, I want to challenge you this morning to walk in covenant faithfulness to her. As fathers, as a dad, I want, to, I want to exhort you to model the gospel and to communicate the gospel to our precious children. It's not okay for us as husbands to sit idly by, on standby, and say, okay, wife, you raise our kids in the fear and admonition of the Lord. Neither is it ever appropriate to say, I'm on autopilot and the world can train my children in the way they shouldn't go. Now, I want to challenge you to be proactive. And whatever specifically that means for you today, let the Spirit apply that. My challenge is for you to man up, for us to be the fathers and men and husbands God has called us to be. And don't blame others. Don't make excuses. Let's truly submit our lives to the gospel and to the Holy Spirit. So church, may Christ be exalted in us. May the Spirit be at work among us. May the Father be glorified through us for the sake of his name among all the nations. Amen. Let's stand together and let's uh, pray. So Holy Spirit, we come before you as our advocate, our counselor, the one who is the, the comforter, the alongside paraclete, the helper. And Lord, we thank you by your spirit that you have not left us as orphans, but we have the Father, uh, the Father of lights, the, our gracious heavenly Father. And Spirit, you remind us of the things Jesus taught us and you make application and guide us into all truth. And so we thank you, Holy Spirit, for continuing to illuminate truth to us, to convict us of sin, righteousness, and judgment, uh, to uh, remind us we're not alone. Uh, but Lord, as we look in the scriptures, we see fear not for I'm with you. And we know the Spirit of God who has now sealed us and indwelling us and empowering us. We now are able to walk in the newness of the Spirit. So Holy Spirit, we pray that you would help us to join you in your sanctifying work in our individual lives, corporately as a part of the body of Christ. And the Lord, you would continue to be glorifying Christ um, in and through our lives. So we love you, Lord. We thank you for our fathers. We pray that you would honor all of our dads today. We pray that you would be honored in and through the gospel as we proclaim it, live it, and share it. So we love you, Lord, and we thank you for your grace. And Lord, as we close this morning, we're in awe that you've saved a wretch like me. So we love you and we glory in the cross. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to our podcast. Shoreline Church meets every Sunday at 9 a.m. and 1030 a.m. at the port on Lena Road. You can get more content and more information by visiting thisisshoreline.com. If you have any questions or any prayer needs, please don't hesitate to email us at info at God bless you.